You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Cable sabotage in France remains under investigation. Spearfishing by Cozy Bear. Widespread and damaging Russian cyber attacks have yet to appear, but criminals find a new field of activity. Hacktivism and privateering. The legal and prudential limits to hacktivism, applying lessons learned from an earlier cyber war. Romanian authorities say last week's DDoS incident was retaliation for Bucharest's support of Kyiv. Rick Howard is dropping some S-bombs. Carol Terrio reports on virtual kidnapping. And our evil seems to be back after all. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, May 2nd, 2022. The sabotage incident in which fiber optic cables in France were cut, severing internet and telecommunications connections, is seen as exhibiting the vulnerability of infrastructure to physical disruption, CyberScoop reports. The incident remains under investigation. The sabotage is regarded as having been coordinated, but there's so far been no attribution. Cozy Bear, also called Nobelium or APT-29, a threat actor associated with Russia's SVR Foreign Intelligence Service, has continued to engage in cyber espionage against a wide range of diplomatic targets. The campaigns have achieved initial access through spear phishing, and they're marked by the abuse of Atlassian Trello and other legitimate cloud services platforms for command and control communication, Bleeping Computer reports. Widespread and damaging Russian cyber attacks have yet to appear, but that's not entirely for want of trying. Nuisance-level distributed denial-of-service attacks have occurred, as have some relatively ineffectual wiper attacks against Ukrainian targets. Russia hasn't sustained any devastating cyber attacks either, but it's feeling the effects of a range of government-run and hacktivist attacks. Many of these have taken the form of doxing, and these two have been nuisance-level operations. But both the extensive participation of hacktivists and the novelty of the experience of coming under cyber attacks have, in the case of Russia, been striking. Russia had hitherto enjoyed a degree of immunity from criminal attack, for one thing. 
There were more lucrative targets elsewhere. Many of the gangs were based in Russia and enjoyed Russian government protection, or at least benign neglect. And there's some opinion that they were deterred from hitting Russian targets by a fear of Russian ability to retaliate. Much of that immunity seems to have evaporated over the course of Russia's war against Ukraine. The Washington Post describes how this has changed. It's become, the headline says, a free-for-all. The article says, Experts anticipated a Moscow-led cyber assault. Instead, unprecedented attacks by hacktivists and criminals have wreaked havoc in Russia. Particularly telling is a report from the Lithuanian security firm Surfshark, which has made a practice of tallying the number of leaked credentials, and now finds that Russian addresses amount to more than half the world total. The Washington Post says, The number of presumed Russian credentials, such as those for email addresses ending in .ru, in March jumped to encompass 50% of the global total, double the previous month, and more than five times as many published as were in January. They go on to quote Surfshark, saying, The U.S. is first most of the time, sometimes it's India. It was really surprising for us. All of this said, U.S. authorities continue to warn that Russia still poses a substantial cyber threat. C4ISR Net reports that testimony before Congress last week continued to emphasize that threat. No one has so far turned out the lights in Kiev or Moscow, but a distinctive style of non-governmental activity has emerged. On the Russian side, this has been a continuation of the privateering that's long been in evidence. Some Russophone gangs, notably the Conti Ransomware Group, have expressed their patriotic adherence to Moscow's cause, but in general, they haven't enjoyed as much success as might have been expected. Criminal activity continues, but not with noticeably greater effect than has been seen before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The gangs themselves have become targets of hacktivist reprisal, with the doxing of internal Conti chats being a prime example. Such doxing doesn't seem to have had much effect on Conti, at least in the near term, but the leaks may offer some useful insight into the gang's organization and operations. The Ukrainian side has benefited from a surge of ideologically aligned hacktivism by Anonymous and others, who have received some encouragement and some targeting suggestions from the Ukrainian government via its volunteer IT army channels. An analyst at security firm Flashpoint told the Washington Post, There are state institutions in Ukraine interested in some of the data and actively helping some of these operations. The Post quotes Distributed Denial of Secrets co-founder Emma Best as saying, The sense that Russia is off-limits has somewhat expired, and hacktivism is one of the most accessible forms of striking at an unjust regime or its supporting infrastructure. Distributed Denial of Secrets is a hacktivist data dump site that has prominently displayed some of the hacktivist take from Russian organizations. It hasn't, by any means, confined itself to Russian government data, but such data have recently been prominent on the site. Emma Best calls much of the hacktivism a symbolic pantsing of President Putin, saying, He's cultivated a strongman image for decades, yet not only is he unable to stop the cyber attacks and leaks hitting his government and key industries, he's the one causing it to happen. A YouTuber is calling for other hacktivists to join in a distributed denial-of-service campaign against Russia. That call, Bleeping Computer points out, not only violates YouTube's terms of service, 
but would also be illegal in most jurisdictions, and that means not just Russian jurisdictions, but jurisdictions throughout the rest of the world as well. The tool being recommended and offered to would-be hacktivists, Liberator, is murky in its workings and provenance. Perhaps it functions as advertised, but it's difficult to be sure. Bleeping Computer quotes a comment on the relevant YouTube channel by a user who goes by the screen name Junk. He's sympathetic to Ukraine's cause, but warns that Liberator is a closed-source tool that transfers information about a user's device to a disbalancer server and that it does so through a non-encrypted channel. Avast warned last month about the risks involved in using such tools for hacktivist purposes. The users expose themselves to considerable risk, and besides, it's almost surely illegal. In 2007, Estonia was the target of Russian cyber attacks that significantly disrupted the country's financial and commercial sectors. The campaign, while it did not extend to physical invasion, nonetheless foreshadowed Russia's operations against Ukraine. Estonia's perceived affront was the relocation of a Soviet-era war memorial, the Bronze Soldier, that Russian state-controlled media seized upon as evidence of persecution of Estonia's Russophone minority. Estonia learned from the experience and has since become one of the countries that punches far above its weight in cyberspace. It appears, NPR reports, that Russia's playbook has not changed significantly since 2007 and that the lessons learned since then have served Ukraine and others who've come under Russian cyber attack as well. Romanian authorities have attributed the distributed denial-of-service attack government websites experienced late last week to Kilnet, a threat actor that specializes in DDoS attacks conducted in the interest of Russia, the record reports. The attack affected Romania's Ministry of Defense, its border police, the National Railway, and the OTP Bank. Kilnet claimed that the attacks were a retaliation for Romania's support of Ukraine in the face of Russia's invasion. And finally, there's more evidence that the R-Evil ransomware gang is back from what appears to have been a temporary break. Its Tor network returned, Bleeping Computer says, but researchers were looking for code that could be attributed to the gang. Researchers at Avast found code samples that seemed to connect the new activity to R-Evil. Rebranding appears to be underway, but the gang seems careless about covering its tracks. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. 
Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Cybercrime often mirrors or takes inspiration from tried-and-true real-world criminal techniques, things like identity theft, fraud, or harassment. Our UK commentator Carol Terrio files this report on virtual kidnappings. Virtual kidnappings are nothing new. In fact, they've been talked about for decades. But it seems that they may be on the rise once again, according to the FBI. Now, A virtual kidnapping is where a scammer pretends to have kidnapped a loved one and tries to get someone close to them to pay the ransom as soon as possible in order to secure their release. Typically, the FBI said, the virtual kidnappers will request payments through a wire transfer and push families to act quickly. Of course, in these virtual kidnappings, the loved one has not been kidnapped, may be safe at home or driving to daycare. And sometimes it's too late for you because in the panic, you paid the ransom. The FBI said, quote, virtual kidnappers can be very convincing, often representing themselves as members of drug cartels or corrupt law enforcement. The caller might allege, for example, your daughter has been kidnapped and you hear a female screaming in the background. That would get me jump-started. Another variant of the fraud has a family member being held because he or she caused an auto accident, says the scammer, and is injured and won't be allowed to go to the hospital until damages are paid. Callers will typically provide the victim with specific instructions to ensure the safe return of a family member. Targets may even be ordered to stay on the line until the money is wired and safely transferred. The caller even might claim not to have received the money and demand more payment. Not fun. So here's the FBI advice on how you can help avoid virtual kidnapping scams. One is never post news of upcoming travel dates and locations online, like in your socials. Have a secret password that family members can ask for in an emergency to confirm that the loved one is really in trouble. I mean, my husband and I have a secret word to say, let's leave this party now because we're done. But I've never had an emergency one. The scammer knows virtually nothing about the kidnappee or the purported kidnappee, such as what they look like, where they were picked up, where they were going, where they live. And if they do call, they tend not to use the kidnapped person's phones. You can't just check the number. When they call you, they will obviously, like any scammer, try to really push up the stress so that you act quickly and don't think clearly. And they will try and keep you on the phone until you agree to pay the money, which means that you can't get off the phone to call your partner just to find out that they are at home. 
and the scammer may request that the ransom funds be wired to multiple people in several small amounts. The FBI asks anyone who believes they are targets of a virtual kidnapping to call 911 immediately and ask that the FBI be informed. So in reading all this, I'm thinking, who is likely to be targeted in this type of scenario? And this would be people that post way too much personal information on social media and share it with too wide a group. If this sounds like you, there's no shame, but this is maybe a really excellent time to go check your social media settings for every channel you use and check your contacts to make sure that all the information you're sharing is with people that you trust. This was Carol Terrio for the CyberWire. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Rick Howard. He's the CyberWire's chief security officer and also our chief analyst. Rick, always great to welcome you back to the show. Hey, Dave. So on this week's CSO Perspectives podcast, which of course is over on our CyberWire Pro side of the house, you are pulling out your Rick the Toolman toolbox and you are going to drop some S-bombs. <laughs> that is a software bill of materials. What have you got for us? Man, I, we were talking before the show started. I, I wish I would have thought of that before you just said that. That would have been perfect for the episode. Right, right. <laughs> And so you know, Dave, that uh, the idea of S-bombs has been in the news of late, mostly, I think, because President Biden signed an executive order on cybersecurity last year that compelled the U.S. government to use this concept to manage all of its software. Yeah, and I, I noticed in some of the, the coverage you've been doing that you, you refer to S-bomb as a concept and not a tool. Is that deliberate on your part? Yeah, it is because, you know, we really don't have a standard SBOM tool or platform yet. What mm. we do have is a bunch of developing standards and requirements for tools that will, they will, these will all help us reduce the risk of software supply chain exposure. Although vendors are starting to sell these SBOM platforms, but the idea of an SBOM at this point is still more of a concept than a reality. So when does it actually become a reality? What, what, what is it and, and what could that do for us? Well, in its simplest form, uh, an SBOM is a formal record containing the details and supply chain relationships of various components used to building software. They're like mm. lists of nested software components designed to enable supply chain transparency. All right. Well, what problem are we trying to solve here? And, and I guess on top <laughs> yeah. of that, why is it so important that President Biden would include it in a presidential directive? I know it's amazing this kind of a this kind of geek detail would hit his level, but so let me explain it this way. 
Mm. According to a report by Synopsys this year, 97% of commercial code has an open source component. And within that 97%, 78% of that code is based on, is all of that code base is open source. Okay, so that was a lot of numbers. All right, let me just restate that. Right? <laughs> In English for me, Rick. In English. Yes, yes. So here's what, here's what it boils down to. Almost all commercial software is over three quarters open source. So yeah. let that sink in. So huh. that means that we as a community really have no idea where our software component parts are coming from, who built them, and whether or not the people who did build them are even maintaining them. And it opens mm. the door for all kinds of supply chain attacks that we saw last year against victims like SolarWinds, AcelliWind, and Casilla. So this week on the show, we're going to break open the Rick the Toolman toolbox, like you said, and talk about <laughs> the current state of SBOM evolution. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, before I let you go, uh, you also uh, head up our efforts on uh, a fun little podcast that we call Word Notes, and that is where each week you you try to parse uh, the word salad that uh, we love so much in the cybersecurity community. Uh, what are you covering this week? Yeah, you know, I love Word Notes, and it's just five minutes each week, but it's eminently bingeable, and it takes on the word that we are all familiar with and explains it and tries to determine how it fits into the cybersecurity zeitgeist. You know, in, in the last month, we've talked about Shields Up and DMARC and Pegasus. But this week's word, though, is DevOps. And most hmm. of us probably think that phrase is relatively new, say, the last 10 years. But we've traced the origin all the way back to 1994. So really? if you like this kind of thing, just come check it out. It's fun for newbies. It's fun for veterans. So just come and give it a shot. I think you'll like it. All right, terrific. Well, that is Word Notes. And of course, there is also CSO Perspectives over on CyberWire Pro. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security. Ha! I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. 
Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.